So there's no light on the microphone. Am I on with the mic? All right, all right. Yeah, so why don't we turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles, and while you're turning there, just to continue with um, uh, just some of those comments, it has truly been a blessing to uh, be with you this weekend, and um, sometimes I'll, I'll hear preachers come or speakers come, and they'll say things like that, and you know, you kind of wonder, like, are they just saying because it's like, you know, the socially acceptable thing to say or something like that? But um, you all have, especially obviously the men, because that's who I've been with. You men have been ministering to me. Uh, GAD has been ministering to me. It has been a literal, true blessing to be here. Um, I'm, I'm leaving here. I was just telling JD a moment ago. Um, it's been a lot of teaching. Um, and for the men who have received it, I'm sure there's been a lot of hearing um, with all of that. But I'm leaving um, refreshed. Uh, from being with you men, and I hope that you were refreshed from this weekend as well. Uh, when I was at Moody, um, I mentioned it last night or yesterday, but I'll say it again because I think it deserves being said, that I came into Moody new in Christ. Uh, JD was relatively mature in Christ. For an 18-year-old, he was strong in the Lord, and I was so blessed. We were so blessed at Moody. Jeff Cohorn, as you guys know, we were all on what we call Colby 4, and you see God's blessings and sovereignty because these were godly men. These were men of God. And although Moody basically had men of God who were going there, I would say that Colby Four was a unique blessing to be with men who were pursuing Christ and to have that. And so, yes, we were together. In fact, I don't know if J.D. remembers, but I went to Moody with the intention of being a missionary myself. And so with your heart to be a missionary and my heart to be a missionary, um, there was just a joy and a zeal. I wanted to be something of a missionary pastor. That was kind of my thought, and I ended up being stateside and um, ended up in Colorado. I've been there for 10 years. In fact, I just crossed 10 years on January 4th, so I'm just past my 10-year uh, anniversary in Colorado. And although I live there, um, I actually am from New Jersey, and so there's a lot of uh, East Coast ways about me. And so I don't really know how I'm going to come across compared to JD, but if I come across more intense, more uppity, things like that, that's not Colorado, that's New Jersey you're seeing in that situation. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Second Chronicles. Um, we are going to go through this whole chapter, um, but I do want to begin, I normally want to begin with uh, reading the passage and then teach from it. But we're going to go through the whole chapter. We're pretty much going to finish it all the way on out. Um, we're going to go down to verse 36, but we don't have time to do both, the pre-reading and going through the message. So we'll just read a few verses that kind of set the scene, then we'll pray, and then we'll open God's word again. So Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He, bought in, he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square in the east. Then he said to them, Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps. 
They have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place of the Lord God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror and of horror and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. Please bow with me in prayer. Father God, we are just reading of your word just now together. And as your people, Lord God, we come to you with, Lord, with humble hearts, with broken hearts, with contrite hearts. And Father God, we want to be submitted before you to learn from you. And so, Father God, I ask that your spirit be working in this time and that you'd be pleased and glorified by, by the declaration, the proclamation of your word and our reception of it. Lord, I submit and surrender my words to you, that you would fill them with your spirit and use them, Lord God, not that they're my words, but that, that your words taught accurately and faithfully. And Lord God, I pray for those who are listening that you would likewise, by your spirit, illumine them to understand, and Lord God, illumine them to see applications of their own lives, that Lord God, we might leave here increasingly conformed and transformed to the glory of who Christ is, our Lord and Savior. So Lord God, we thank you for this time. We lay this before you, and we ask for your blessings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it's been an honor to be with you. So I, lo I love the pulpit. I've just got to get used to where do I put stuff here. Um, uh, and, you know, oh, I guess we'll, we'll just keep on going on here. Um, it is, it's good, an honor to be with you all, and um, what a joy to come together and to learn from, from the Lord and his word together as men. And this past weekend, we were talking about vital truths about how to live the, the Christian life as a godly man. And together we looked at various principles for God's design for man. Uh, we talked about God's design really for mankind because man and women are made in the image of God. And God has, for mankind, called us to be those who are fruitful, those who multiply, those who fill the earth and subdue it, all in a way that brings glory to the Lord. We also said that there are responsibilities and realms of responsibilities that God has entrusted to men. Responsibilities to love and serve God responsibilities to die to self, to love our wives, to teach our children, to serve God and his people, and to be a, a righteous witness before a watching world. We also talk about why we struggle in these responsibilities and how our flesh and the spiritual warfare and the world itself war against us, but God has given us a new nature. We are new in Christ, and this new nature has been created in Christ. And this new nature, this new man, this new self is able to live according to God's design. And the way that we live a transformed life and the obedient life is not by willpower, but is by dying to self and being filled with the Holy Spirit that by his grace we might put off the old man and put on the new man that has been created in Christ. This is a process of sanctification, holification, uh, clarification, and, and, and focus on the Lord. And it's the same basic principles for man and woman, teens, and even children. We yield to the Holy Spirit daily. We daily come before him. We daily yield to him and surrender our lives to him and seek to be filled with his spirit and seek his grace to put off the old man, to believe and walk in the new man 
and walk in the new life he has given to us by faith. Now, these truths are truths that we may already know. I suspect we have. We call these the fundamentals of biblical Christianity. And sometimes we need to be reminded of these things because we have lost focus of them because of the hurry of life. Other priorities have taken stage, center stage. Maybe there's some challenge in life that that's our focus right now. Maybe we've struggled with some sin, and, and maybe the hope of transformation has begun to fade because we just can't, by our own willpower, defeat that sin. Or maybe this idea of putting off the new man, putting on the life we've received that's been created in Christ, maybe that's new to us, and we're, we're open to it. We're, we're desirous to even pursue these things. Well, I hope that that's the case for all of us, because living a life in obedience to God is one of the greatest blessings that we have in Christ. And so with that in mind, now I want to look at 2 Chronicles 29 to look at an event in Judah's history where Judah had gotten off the tracks with God, but under King Hezekiah's leadership, the people repented and they reconsecrated their lives back to God, back to their covenant with God, and God was gracious to accept them once again and restore them to joyful fellowship with him and with one another. So again, hopefully you have your, your Bibles open. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles 29. And let's look at this New Year revival that begins under King Hezekiah. Let's go to our first point. We're going to talk about this whole this revival that's going on, and we got Hezekiah's personal revival is where we're going to begin, because we just read about that in verses 1 to 11. So point number one, Hezekiah's personal revival. This passage here, is a record of revival that begins on the first day of Hezekiah's reign, which begins on the first day of the year of 716 B.C. Now, the first day of our year we call New Year's Day, and so when I saw that this passage occurs on their New Year's Day of 716 B.C., I was like, you know what? This would be a great passage to preach right now, because this is the first Sunday of the year. We're just beginning 2024, and this is a wonderful opportunity for us to examine our own lives and, and have a personal revival in our own lives as well. That's what's going on here. So let's go to verse 1. Verse 1 says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Let's pause here. Let's discuss the historical background that's led up to this event today. Hezekiah was king for 29 years from 716 B.C. to 687 B.C. He was Judah's 12th king, and he's, the, he's one of eight good kings in the southern kingdom. The nation of Israel, you might remember, has divided into uh, two kingdoms, two nations. A couple centuries earlier under King Rehoboam, that was back in 931 B.C. You got the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, which is kind of the, the better of the two, not great, is called Judah, and it's got eight good kings in its history. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and there's no good kings. And that piece is helpful to know, because sometimes when we're reading a passage and we see a reference to Israel, we have to remember that at this time, Israel was often being referred to, the northern kingdom is called Israel, and when we're finding it, that may not be referring to all of the, the nation, but the northern kingdom. So going on, back to this here, we, as we go to this passage, um, the criteria, we, th we think about these kings. When I say there's a good king in the south, the north, a good king in the south, no good kings in the north, the criteria for whether or not a king was even evaluated as a good king 
as if they followed the example of David, and often is referred to as their father David. And you see that here in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, it says that God's evaluation of Hezekiah says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now, what does that mean and why is that important? Well, if you remember your history of Israel, Israel's first king was Saul, and its second king was David. And Saul was a bad king. David was a good king. David was a righteous king. And we need to understand the distinction why that is and understand how that evaluation then comes all the way down through David to Hezekiah and the other kings that are classified as good kings. You see, going all the way back to David and Saul, King Saul epitomized what it looked like to rule for self. Everything that King Saul did was for himself. He, he did it for his own name, his own reputation, based on what people thought of him, not based on what God thought of him. Now, that's going to be a problem in any context of our lives, but it was even worse for Israel's kings because they were commissioned by God to, to lead the people to be in this nation of people who would obey God. This goes back all the way to God's original purpose when he covenanted with Abraham back in, in Genesis 12, 15, and 22. You'll remember back in Genesis 12, God chose Abraham to establish a nation of people who would obey him, obey the Lord. And that charter that God made, that covenant God made with Abraham, really was on the heels of Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 is that, that, that murky passage about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And we can get lost about what was the sin of the Tower of Babel. But the point is, is that it shows us that the entire world, all you nations of the world, were united in disregarding God's commands, in rebelling against God's commands. And so in Genesis 11, all nations are united in rebellion. In Genesis 12, God then chooses Abraham and says, I will choose you to establish a nation of people who will obey me. And so that was the charter for the people to obey, the people of Israel to obey the Lord. And so God was faithful to his promises to Abraham and to the people. And so you see that when you read through Genesis and then you, when you get to Exodus, God is faithful to his promises. They then enter the promised land in the book of Joshua. God is faithful to them. But then when you get to the book of Judges, you see that the people are starting to struggle in their walk with God. Over and over again, the book of Judges says that people did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, their conscience was driven by their opinions, their, their actions were driven by their opinions, and they were essentially then following the same path as the world. Because that's what the world's people do. They do what's right in their own eyes. God's people do what is right according to God's standard, God's word. So they weren't trying to, the Israelites, like everyone else, wasn't trying to obey God, did whatever they thought was best. And so sometimes the Lord would raise up judges, and the judges would call the people back to the Lord, and, and we've got we to obey the Lord, and the people would get on board for a little while, then they would drift away. And so you got this up and down, these cycles in the book of Judges. And so when we get to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is a transition. And the, the, the idea is, well, transition from these temporary, flimsy judges that may or may not do a good job, because not every judge was very righteous. You know, um, Samson wasn't really a, a great example to follow after. And so the Lord raises up and establishes these kings, and these kings were going to then establish and lead the people to obey the covenant of God, and they were going to rule the people and guide the people to all be in obedience to the Lord. So again, going back to Saul now, Israel's first king was Saul, 
but he wasn't any better than the judges. He didn't lead the people to obey God. He wasn't picking up the charge saying, let's all go follow the Lord. He's trying to establish a nation devoted to himself, his, his own dynasty, the dynasty of Jonathan. And so God had no choice but to get rid of Saul and his son Jonathan and to make sure that that self-centered, man-centered dynasty never gets off the ground. And so the Lord then replaces Saul with David. Now, David, we, we often talk about uh, the, the phrase that's used of him in Acts 13, 22. He's a man after God's own heart, which is an interesting phrase. A man after God's own heart when he lived the checkered life that we know David lived. But David's heart was to establish a nation devoted to God and following God's ways. And so David became the standard by which all the other kings were evaluated. And if you followed in his example, he was your father because you were following after David. The kings that led people to obey God were the good kings. The people who, in a sense, were like, we'll just disregard, we'll do my opinion, whatever it is, those were the bad kings. Which then brings us back to the Lord's evaluation of Hezekiah in verse 2. Again, Hezekiah is a good king, and we're going to see in a few moments what it looks like to lead the people in God's ways. We, we go on here, we go, actually go back to verse 1 for a moment. It says he's 25 years old, and that's an impressive thing when you think about it. 25 is, is not that old, even though it was maybe a different society. Still, it's 25, and he's, he's ruling this nation, and his first act as this new king is to call people back to the Lord. But that's even more impressive when we consider the, the environment that Hezekiah grew up in and, and really the, the example of his own dad that he saw growing up. Remember, who was Hezekiah's dad? Hezekiah's dad was Ahaz. And in fact, Ahaz was mentioned in the last verse of the preceding chapter. If you look at me back at Hezekiah, or sorry, Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 28, 27, the last verse of 2 Chronicles 20, it says, So Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. And so here, Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz. And was Ahaz a good king? Well, notice there it says that when he died, the people did not bury him in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And why not? Because he was such an evil king. They're like, he doesn't even deserve to be buried with him. The whole chapter of 2 Chronicles 28 chronicles Ahaz's treachery. Turn back to the beginning of 2 Chronicles 28. It's kind of a helicopter and just skip into a bunch of these verses here. I'm just going to summarize them quick. You can read along if you want. In verse 1, Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. He should have, but he doesn't. In verse 2, he followed the example of the wicked kings of the north. That would be, remember, uh, the northern kingdom, the evil kingdom. Uh, they made idols of all, so did Ahaz. In verse 3, he burned incense to false gods and practiced child sacrifice of his own sons. Maybe Hezekiah just grew up seeing this. And, and part of the reconsecration of revival we're going to be seeing in a moment is because he saw what pagan idolatry leads to. In verse 4, Ahaz makes sacrifices to these false gods at every green tree. In verses 5 to 15, Ahaz is being defeated by his enemies. In verse 16, he seeks help from the kings of the world. doesn't work out. Verse 19, the Lord is humbling him. Ahaz is too blind to see it. In verse 21, Ahaz starts emptying out the temple. This is just horrifying. Emptying out the temple. 
In verse 23, he gives up on the Lord entirely and pursues the gods of the nations. In verse 24, he further empties out the temple and closes the door to the house of the Lord and sets up places of idolatry throughout the land. Turns out the lights, nothing to do there. And so this is what Hezekiah's dad did. This is the world that Hezekiah grew up in apostasy, apathy, and basically no one around him obeying the Lord. And to make Hezekiah's revival even more stunning is that Hezekiah himself has a front row seat to this spiritual decline. Because it's not obvious in our texture, but when we marry these passages together, this and, and from Kings as well, we see that Hezekiah was on his throne with his father Ahaz for 13 years, from 729 B.C. to 716 B.C., we, we might call this a co-regency. They were both ruling at the same time. King Ahaz, sort of King Hezekiah. And this kind of co-regency was, was somewhat common in that day and other points in history as well. And I would imagine that every reason is there's a different, uh, every time it occurs, there's a different reason in that situation. But I, you can imagine that one reason for having a co-regency with a dad and a son reigning at the same time is to allow for a weak and aging king, a dignified way to pass the baton to the next generation, and to spend, spend some time kind of with that associate king, so to speak, to just get him ready to go on day one. And indeed, Hezekiah is ready to go on day one. Now, the revival we're seeing here, maybe it's because Hezekiah was just repulsed by his father's apostasy. Maybe he felt guilty by his own role in it. Maybe he just knew, because he says it, that the Lord's judging Judah because they've turned away from the Lord. Whatever reason it is, on Hezekiah's first official day as the official king of the land, his first order of business was to get the nation back on track with God. And so in verse 3 it says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Get into work fixing the building. Now verse 3 tells us this is the first month of his reign. And if we were to skip down to verse 17, it tells us this actually happens on the first day of the first month. And so this, is again, is the new year. Now, when you think about how this could work, just administratively, practically speaking, even something in our day and age today, it makes sense. Somehow it was decided. Maybe it was something between Ahaz and Hezekiah. Maybe Ahaz was dead. It's kind of hard to know where Ahaz was at this point. Maybe just the other ministers say, okay, Ahaz is trying to do this. And we'll just make this so that on the first day of the year, you're the king from here on out. And so whatever it is, here we got the first day of the year. It's his first day as king. He's been co-regent for 13 years, but now that he gets full control of the land on his first day of business, his first act is to launch a revival. And the revival begins in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, Hezekiah gathers the religious leaders, and he says to them in verse 5, Listen to me, O Levites. These are the, 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 the tribe of, that produced the priests, the, the spiritual leaders, so to speak, of the, the land. Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They've also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps that have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel." 
So Hezekiah, again, had seen firsthand how their fathers had neglected the right worship of the Lord. He had seen how his own father led the people astray. He had seen how the priests agreed. They were on board with, yeah, sure, you want to close up the temple, take this stuff, use it for something else, go for it. We're not using it anyway. And he had seen how the nation had collectively turned from God and literally emptied out the temple and turned off the lights. Now it's time to turn the lights back on. And so Hezekiah reminds the Levites of what they're supposed to be about. And so in verse 4, he calls them to re-consecrate themselves back to the Lord's work. Does this from the east side, the kind of the, the, the established sacred side of the temple. From the east side, we've got to go back and get this right. Now the word consecrate speaks of a singular devotion to things of the Lord. We're called to be consecrated to the Lord. It's rooted in the principle of, being, of being, something being devoted to a sacred use. And so here Hezekiah is calling the Levites and the priests to examine their ways, look through their life, look through the religious life of Israel or Judah, and remove anything that was not devoted to the Lord. This kind of consecration, this kind of re-consecration, takes a careful examination, a thoughtful examination of one's own life. It takes an awareness of what we're doing. It takes awareness of why we're doing it and whether or not all of that fits according to what God has called us to do. It takes an evaluation of our lives according to, uh, through the lens of God. And it takes faith. It takes faith to set aside anything that we're doing that we can't legitimately say, this is consecrated to the Lord. And so here, Hezekiah is calling the Levites to return to this kind of consecration, this kind of devotion to the Lord. No longer be devoted to or consecrated or in any way in part, partaking of the false gods of the nations, not the religious uh, beliefs of the day. Be consecrated to the Lord himself and to his ways that he has prescribed in his word. So Hezekiah is clear in this passage that the troubles that they have experienced were directly because of their apostasy to the Lord. And so he says, going on down now to verse 8, he says, Therefore the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, of hissing, as you see in your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, Hezekiah could say this because, again, he had that front row seat to the sins of his father, the sins of their leadership, the sins of the nation, and he has seen just how empty and hopeless the, the sinful ways of the father, his father and the people were. He saw their rebellion against the Lord. He saw his dad's pursuit of the false gods. He saw how, how his dad had offered up his siblings to the Lord in child sacrifice. And he saw how useless all that was, how none of these other gods did anything to help on out because they didn't even exist. And so it's time to get the people back to a right relationship with the true God of Israel. And this began with them re-consecrating themselves back to their covenant with the Lord. I love how Hezekiah puts this in verse 10. If you look with me at verse 10, it says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant. It is in my heart. I love that. What a, what a godly leader to say, it's in my heart, guys. It's, I'm just burdened. I'm burdened that we covenant with the Lord of God of Israel that his burning wrath, burning anger may turn away. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you. We'll get to that in a moment. The Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. 
I love these two verses because they show us the way back to God is to simply re-covenant, rededicate, and re-consecrate our lives to him. Now, what's a covenant? I'm sure you know these things, but just to go over them. A covenant is, is a set of binding promises between two or potentially two or more people to treat each other with harmonious blessings, often with a the, with the sense of family. The most common kind of covenant that we still have in our society is a marriage covenant where a man and a woman come before a group of friends and family and they make a series of promises, a covenantal promises to each other. We call them vows, but they're making promises and this is a binding set of promises that they will, will fulfill and faithfully pursue those promises for the rest of their lives together. And they're, into, they're now forming a marriage covenant before God and before his people. So the Bible itself is the record of God's promises and God's covenants with man. I, I, I know you guys see this because it's on the whiteboard over here in the other room here. But the Old Testament are, are the records of the Old Covenant. The New Testament are the records of the New Covenant. The word testament is simply just a Latin word for saying covenant. So this is kind of, there's more than just the Old Covenant here, but that's the basic gist of this. This is the New Covenant. And the Old and New Covenants are the records of God's promises. Essentially the same heart behind both covenants to embrace us as his people, to forgive us of our sins, to wash us of the sins that would otherwise have caused the separation between us and him, to reconcile with us that he might gather us to be with him for all eternity. That's the covenant that God is making with us. And we are also making a covenant with him. We are promising, in a sense, to be his people, to walk in his ways, to, to live lives or in fellowship with him, bringing glory to him. But the thing is, we're human, we're fleshly, we have temptations, we have things that cause us to break our covenant with God, to, to go astray, to do our own thing. And sometimes... The Lord lets us experience the pain of being outside of his blessings so that when we hear the call to return to Christ, we're like, you know, this garbage of the world doesn't taste so good, so I'll take you up. If I can still come back and still be reconciled to you through Christ and the cross, I'll take you up on that offer. And we come back to the Lord. And in that coming back to God, we are re-consecrating our lives back to him. In the Old Testament, they re-consecrate their lives. Even right here, we're... We're seeing this in this passage. And there are principles from this passage about what it looks like to have a heart re-consecrated back to the Lord that we can learn from today. So let's go to our second point. Let's look at the people's revival and see what this re-consecration looks like in their lives. So point number two, the people's revival. Going on down now to verses 12 to 14. The Levites hear Hezekiah's words of exhortation and they step up and they join with him and they become a key force, the driving force of this revival. Hezekiah's a driving force, but they, they become another key force. In order for us to grasp the significance of their involvement, we need to remember that the Levites were the tribe that produced the priests and the other servants that led the community to worship God. And although every priest was a Levite, not every Levite was a priest. In fact, most Levites, I would think, would have to imagine would be non-priestly roles uh, in their work. But there still were roles they were called to. The priests, for what it's worth, they were called the Kohanim. This was a class of people, a class of, of Levites that were called to serve the Lord inside the deep recesses of the tabernacle. 
but other Levites who were not Kohanim had other roles to serve in the tabernacle or the temple as well. And we see those other roles in this verse, verse 12. If you look with me, you'll see them. It says, Then the Levites arose, Mahath, the sons of Amasi, and Joel, the son of Azariah, from the sons of the Kohathites. That's a key word there. And from the sons of Merari, you see that, that phrase, sons of, that lets us know this is somebody important. Uh, from the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, Azariah, the son of Jehalel. And from the Gershonites, Joash, Joah, the son of Zima, and Eden, the son of Joah. Okay, might be just a bunch of names here. But to an ancient Israelite or uh, follower of Christ, reading these words, these would have, would have, some of these words, these names here, would have just kind of risen. They'd see what they are. The names Kohathite, Gershonite, and Merites. These are specific families that were chosen back by God back in Numbers 3 and 4 to care for the tabernacle. The Kohathites were the ones who cared for the vessels inside the tabernacle or then later the temple. The Gershonites were chosen by God to care for the interior structure of the tabernacle, and the Merites took care of the, 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 outer, the other stuff. Interior might be a better way to say rather than interior structure, and the Merites took care of the, the, the structure of it. And so these were the families that throughout the history, when they would move the tabernacle, they would pack it on down, they would move it on out, and you'd, you'd have the Merites packing things on up. You'd have the, uh, they'd get to the new place, they'd set it back on up. The Gershon has to go in and make it all look nice and pretty. And the Kohathites would put all the vessels where they belong. They had these specific roles that they were called by God to do. And so, and then the Kohanim would come on in, the priests, they would come on in and then provide the actual worship to the Lord. And so the point is here that these key servants supported Hezekiah's reforms. He, he was basically rebuking them, basically saying, you guys are being derelict in your duty. You're leaders, and you're leading the people astray by your lack of fidelity and, and consecration to the Lord. And he's calling them to obey him, obey the Lord. And these Levites are hearing this, and they're like, yeah, you got a good point. You got a good point here. And so they're, they're stepping on up. They're, they're willing to get involved. Hezekiah says, you guys have just been derelict in your jobs. And they don't hear that rebuke and then get mad. They're like, all right, dude, we're in. Let's get to work. And so in verse 15, it says, they assembled their brothers, these other guys. They consecrated themselves and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord. Because remember, they had these roles of taking care of this stuff anyway. In other words, their support of Hezekiah wasn't just lip service. They went through the actual rituals of consecration, or in this case, reconsecration. They made sure that they were right with the Lord, and then they got to work doing the things that they were supposed to have been doing all along. Now, as we make our way through this passage here, then the priests get involved. The Kohanim get involved in verse 16. These guys roll up their sleeves. They get involved as well. And again, the, the priests were the ones who were authorized to go into the, the holiest parts of the temple. And so they go into the temple because they're authorized to do so. And they take out everything that's unclean. And they bring it out to the courts, basically bring it outside. And then these other Levites then scoop it on up. They carry all, carry all this unclean stuff off to the Kidron Valley and they dump it over there. Now the Kidron Valley was the garbage heap of their day. The word Kidron means dusky, gloomy. It was a place of death. It was a place of, of, of often importance in various events, but dark and gloomy importance. 
David went through the Kidron Valley when he fled Absalom and Absalom's revolt. Jesus went through the Kidron Valley in the night he was arrested. Here it is a place where they're throwing out all of their implements of apostasy. And the point is that these Levites and priests were being faithful to clean out everything that violated their covenant with God, and they were throwing it into the trash heap of the day, the place that nobody goes unless you got to get rid of something. And because of their faithfulness, the temple is getting cleansed and becoming cleansed of its desecrations, and soon it is once again going to be ready for pure worship of the Lord. Now the temple itself still needs to be reconsecrated. And verse 17 explains that this process of consecration began on the first day of the first month. The process began. Let me. The process began the first day of the first month. Otherwise, in other words, New Year's Day. Sixteen days later, they then, in verses 18 and 19, tell Hezekiah the good news. Hezekiah, it's all been reconsecrated. The stuff your dad carted on off and put other places, we went and found it. We brought it back to where it belongs. It's all been set back up. We're ready to worship God. So now they can have a national consecration or a national revival. So let's dig into this national consecration with our third point. Point number three, a national revival. Up till now, this revival began in the heart of one man who was calling the people to join with him and walk in covenant with God. The Levites heard this. They, they, they were convicted. They stood up and they reconsecrated themselves to the Lord. The priests then do as well. But there still needs to be a national revival. We need to get the people on board. So once again, Hezekiah and his leadership leads the people to obey the Lord. And in verse 20 it says, Then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. Now these offerings here are, are far-reaching. They were for the kingdom. They were for the sanctuary. They were for Judah. In fact, in verse 24, they also make offerings for, the, for Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. In other words, the offerings they're making here were to reconsecrate everyone and everything back to Yahweh, the kingdom, the sanctuary, the people of the southern kingdom, the people of the northern kingdom, even though they're rebellious. Hezekiah wants all of God's people to be reconciled back to the Lord. In fact, in the next chapter, Hezekiah even sends letters up to people in the northern kingdom saying, hey, we got this revival going on. We'd love to have you be a part of it. And you have some people coming down and joining in this revival that's going on here. One of the beauties as we go through this passage we're going to see is the old covenant law, the Old Testament law, had built into it ways to re-covenant back to the Lord. It was an understanding of just the human nature, where we go. And so every time an old covenant believer would sin against God, they had, in effect, violated their covenant promises. Their their forefathers had begun all the way back in Exodus 19.8, saying to God, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the essence of the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then they go astray, and they um, walk in other ways, and, and they break their covenant with God. And what a person is doing with the Old Testament sacrifices is they're recognizing, God, you made a promise to me, I made a promise to you, but I haven't kept my promise. And so then they come back to God, and that's where the sacrifices come in. 
The sacrificial system was intended to restore a sincere, penitent worshiper back to the Lord. The person would know their own guilt before the Lord. They would confess and agree that they had broken their covenant with God. They would confess and agree that they deserve to be cut off. There's an entire theology of the cut-off sins, the karet sins that the Jewish folks would worry about. And they would not ever want to be cut off. And so they would appeal to God for his mercy and for his forgiveness. They would present an animal in their place. And it was originally an animal from their own flock. So it was even more closely identified with who they were. And they would present this animal before the Lord and say, essentially, Lord, may your wrath that I deserve fall upon this animal, may be fully and justly poured out, but on this animal instead of me. And in that process, they would return back to covenantal obedience and harmony to the Lord. This process of sober confession is why the Old Testament sacrifices would often come together in sets. They, it wasn't just one sacrifice, then head back home. They usually would have a sin offering, or for it was a certain kind of a sin, a guilt offering. Then they would offer up a burnt offering, and then they would offer up a peace offering. It's helpful to even see that those are the very offerings that are being offered here in this passage here. The first offering is a sin offering. The sin offering you see in verses 21, 23, and 24. The sin offering is where a person is confessing to the Lord, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have broken my covenant with you. They knew that they deserved to be cut off from him, but they were appealing to his mercy and grace to bring his animal upon that wrath and not themselves. They were confessing. They were acknowledging, I've sinned, and your way is the right way. I was supposed to follow that way. I didn't. I'm sorry. I confessed it. Please restore me back to covenant with you. The sin offering is not only one of confession, but also an offering of faith because they were believing God's promises to restore them back to covenant with him through the sin offering. So often today, people say, I I just don't know if God has forgiven me. You know, I've asked for forgiveness. I just don't know if he has. It's a matter of faith, and it was the same thing back then. They had to believe that God would restore them back to covenant, that he would embrace them back, accept them back, if they offered this offering of confession and demonstrated by the sin offering. Jesus, of course, is our sin offering. He's our guilt offering, Isaiah 53 says. He is the one whom we have offered to the Lord and said, Lord, may your wrath for my sins fall upon him for the cross and his work on the cross. And we're believing and trusting that God's wrath has for us been meted out, given out, poured out, but upon Christ instead of us in our place. Now, I mentioned that they would layer their sacrifices. Almost literally, I mean, I wasn't there, but you get the sense when you see the history and, and the studies of it, it seems like it was almost literal where they would have the sin offering and it would be their offer to the Lord. And the next offering on top of that would be the burnt offering. The burnt offering is mentioned first in the book of Leviticus because it is the most holy of all the sacrifices. It is the one that shows a total consecration. Sin's a problem, but God wants us to be totally consecrated. So Leviticus starts off with that one, to be consecrated to the Lord. You see the burnt offering mentioned in this passage in verses 24, 27, 28, 29, 31, 32, 34, 35. So clearly in this passage here, burnt offerings are a big deal, and they're, they're very profound in what they were. It's the most holy of the sacrifices. Its purpose was to re-consecrate someone back to the Lord, to rededicate themselves entirely to the Lord. Every fiber of their being 
this, this total devotion is pictured in how the sacrifice was performed. In the burnt offering, a person would put the entire animal onto the altar, and the entire animal would be burned up before the Lord. We'll see in a moment with the peace offering, that's not the case. But with the burnt offering, it was. Nothing of that sacrifice would come back to the worshiper. Everything was fully given over, fully burned up, consumed to God. And the worshiper was giving his life to the Lord. Now, if you think about how long it takes for a burnt offering, I've never actually just burned an animal from scratch, but I would imagine it would take a while to burn the whole thing up and just to sit there and watch it burn. In fact, Leviticus 6.9 says the burnt offering would be left on the altar all night. And so that would have given the worshiper a long time to think about their sins and to meditate upon the grace and mercy of God and think about how they were fully now fully devoted to the Lord and how good and gracious he was to forgive them of the sins. And then when that process was finished, that person would hopefully be able to leave from there with that clear sense of a new path that they should pursue. The whole process of watching that smolder, watching that burn, thinking it was my sin to put that up there, and thinking through, God is so gracious, he's forgiven me. I'm going to live a new life, change life. I'm going to not go that place anymore, not say those things anymore. I'm going to go that new path. I know in my own life I've had many times where I've experienced something very similar that often when I'm sitting in the chairs, the pews, and someone's preaching, and, and they're preaching on a topic, and I'm feeling particularly convicted. Those words, the topic is burning me like a hot iron, and I'm sitting there, and it's kind of like a burnt offering. i got the whole half hour, 45 minutes Hour and ten, if some people are preaching. Um, although that's really me. I mean, the guys last night is like, <laughs> got that whole time to be hearing that message and to be galvanizing my heart to the Lord, so that when I then get up and leave from that place, there's a, a sense of a whole new, fresh commitment to the Lord to walk in His ways. Going back to this idea of burnt offering, it's not quick. It's not a, Lord, forgive me, and then just go on. The burnt offering, so sacred, because it pointed to a true, heartfelt change. In fact, when a person's sins were super egregious, super dark, they would offer several burnt offerings. And we might think, well, that's because it's really, really bad, so got to, got to really make God. No, that's, the sin offering is just, one, it's just taken care of. The burn offerings, they're heaping up all these sacrifices, is because they're spending hours or days before the Lord thinking about their sins, working out new ways to live so that when they emerge from that place, they're on a new course of life that's recommitted and reconsecrated to the Lord, a new path of obedience. And you see this extended time of burnt offerings going on here in our passage. If you look at verse 31, it says, the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were willing brought burnt offerings. We'll come back to the thank offerings in a minute. Then a lot of, a lot of people were willing to bring burnt offerings. That's, you know, who wants to be reconsecrated to the Lord? People are doing it because you see in verse 32, the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. All these were for burnt. That's a long time going on. The 33, the animals consecrated as sacrifice amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. 
can't even imagine how long it would take to offer these animals entirely burned to the Lord. But Hezekiah and the priests, the people, before God have days together to think about their sins and the judgment they've received and how to reconsecrate themselves and their whole... It's going to take a lot of work to think about our whole nation getting everybody back on track with the Lord. When I read this passage, I marvel at their willingness to examine their own lives for anything that was displeasing to the Lord to make sure every piece of their life was consecrated to Christ or to the Lord. I think if we took a survey of the spiritual life of the typical churchgoer in America, and if we asked them, when was the last time you spent a prolonged period of prayer where you confessed specific sins and acknowledged the wisdom of God's righteous ways and took time to prayerfully think through how you might then live out and pursue a different path than the one you've been on? When was the last time you spent more than like four minutes doing that? Half hour, hour, couple hours a day fasting, praying. In our day and age, that would be relatively rare among God's people. But I think if you were to ask that question of a faithful, observant Jew from this time, I think many would be like, every time I do a burnt offering, that's what I do. It takes like 45 minutes to burn the thing, so I got that whole time to think about what I've done and how to live a new life for the Lord. These days, few Christians have ever had extended times of personal consecration, let alone having that frequently. And yet we can see here, it is supposed to be a part of our lives. Yes, we have been forgiven by Christ working the cross, and yes, we are complete in Christ, but that doesn't mean we're just careless for how we live. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1, a famous verse. Listen to this verse in light of what we've just been talking about with this burnt offering. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That whole passage there is loaded with terminology rooted in the principle of thinking through our life to find a path forward that is good and acceptable and perfect. This idea of proving, look, get to my, working through these things, this spiritual service of worship in the NAS is actually in the King James, your reasonable service, this idea of thinking. There's this idea that you've thought through how you're living, presenting yourself to God, that you might emerge from that process on a path that is good and acceptable and perfect, as in mature, following what is holy and right before God. It's going to take sober reflection. It's going to take privacy in our personal prayer time. It's going to be taking a time where we get away from everyone else, maybe go for a walk, go for, go for a time in our prayer closet or somewhere else and, and think through where we're at and what got us here and what decisions we have made and how to make those decisions differently next time and how to get back to a place of total obedience to the Lord. I hope this kind of surrendered, broken, contrite praying is a key part of your walk with God in 2024. That's the kind of reconsecration that's going to take a a revival in our hearts, our church, and our world. Moving along in our passage here, a lot of singing going on also here, a lot of beautiful singing. Well, actually, it probably wasn't beautiful if you know like ancient music styles, but this is wonderful praise, by the way. That was wonderful. So we go down to verse 25. 
Verse 25, Hezekiah stations the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and, and lyres or like guitars. In verse 26, the Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with trumpets. In verse 27, when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with trumpets accompanied by instruments of David. In verse 20, the whole assembly worshipped. The singers also sang, the trumpets sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. That's a long time. A lot of burnt offerings, a lot of time, a lot of music. Verse 29 finally says, at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. They sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. I love what you're seeing here. You're seeing the king of the land bowing down. You're seeing the leaders, especially the leaders who then two weeks ago were, were way off, three weeks ago, way off track. You see the people bowing down, everyone repenting, everyone coming forward singing praises with joy, worshiping the Lord. It's an amazing picture of revival going on in Hezekiah's heart, the heart of these leaders, and the heart of the people. Can you imagine our president doing this? Can you imagine even former President Trump doing this? Probably not. Leading us in revival, calling us back to the Lord. Everybody, I think some of the problems in America are because we've, we're no longer following the ways of God anymore. Can you imagine? Folks, the best thing for America is to go back to God, go back to the Lord and follow him. We can't imagine that. But listen to what John Hancock, the famous John Hancock, did in 1776 when he was the president of the Continental Congress. You might remember before we actually had our current constitution established, there was a, an interim period called the Continental Congress. He was a president. Listen to his proclamation to the colonies that he said. Listen, to the, listen for the word Jesus in this. He says, I do earnestly recommend that Friday, the 17th day of May, be observed by the said colonies as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer that we may, with united hearts, confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions, and by a sincere repentance and amendment of life, appease his righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and forgiveness. That was a, a former, essentially a president, not, not of our current, but of, a leader of America saying, we as a nation... I got authority. I'm letting you all know, what is it, the Friday, the 17th day of May, 1776. You all got to go before the Lord and humble yourself, humiliate in humiliation with, with repentance, and seek God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ that he might pardon and forgive our nation and our land. Those words are proof. It is possible to have national leadership call us to repent before Jesus and consecrate ourselves to him. Oh, that we would pray for that in our land once again. We're going on to verse 31. says, Then Hezekiah said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. Now, we've already talked about the, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings. Let's talk about these other aspects of the, the thank offerings, the peace offerings are going on here. 
back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, this was generally the final layer. There was also libation pouring where they would pour out other things onto the sacrifices too. But the thank offerings were a big part of the ending set of offerings. They would first begin with the the sin offering where they would confess their sins, then the burnt offering where they would consecrate themselves to the Lord, and then the thank offering and the peace offering. In fact, verse 5 says the thank offerings here were peace offerings. Not all thank offerings are peace offerings. A peace offering is where the sacrifice is cooked and then given back to the worshiper so they could eat it with the priests and their family. It's essentially like a barbecue. I mean, what, what, would, what do you call cooked meat that's been cooked over an open fire and then you all sit around a table and eat it and enjoy it together? We would call that a barbecue. And the person is celebrating their restoration back to God, the fellowship they have as a representative men, as a representative of the families, that we are restored back to covenantal obedience. Our family is going to be obeying the Lord and walking in his ways. And let's just celebrate. Let's celebrate this renewed devotion to the Lord. And so they do this. They have this, this massive thank offering going on. And so at the end of all of this here, you've got this massive feast it's so massive in verse 34, it says that there weren't enough priests to take care of all this, so some of these, these deputized Levites step up and they help out. And then midway through verse 35, it says, Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was established again. 36, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. And so after spending years in sin and error pining under Ahaz's reign, God uses Hezekiah to bring a swift revival to himself, to to Hezekiah himself, to the leaders, and to the nation. Beloved, our nation needs revival. Our world needs revival. But revival has to begin with us. The world has to see in us a true consecration to Jesus. They have to see in us a true devotion to him, a true intent to be in covenant with him, to walk in his ways, a true desire to learn his word and to obey it. And so revival in the world, for us to see a John Hancock rise up again, somebody's got to call that to happen, and it begins with us. We just read here this time, has been looking at a revival on the first day of 716 B.C., Today is the first Sunday of 2024 A.D. Is there anything in your life that needs to be taken out to the trash heap? Is, is there anything in your life that's not consecrated to the Lord? Are you living out your covenant with the Lord to walk in his ways? Now, I know in my own heart, as I've reflected on this passage, I can see things in my own heart that need revival And I need to go through that burnt offering time with the Lord where I I just spend the time necessary to sit before the Lord with a broken and contrite spirit and consider how I'm living and prayerfully be seeking God's grace to guide me to paths that are good and acceptable and perfect in his eyes. And I hope that today or this week or certainly throughout this year, it is a regular part of your life where you're joining with me joining with each other to have your own times of personal consecration to the Lord where you sit before him with a broken and contrite spirit. You consider how you're living and you prayerfully seek God's grace to guide you to ways that are good, acceptable, and perfect before him. And if this idea is new to you or if you've 
never actually entered into covenant with the Lord, you can do that today. Or if there's something in your heart that's corrupted your devotion to him, you can re-consecrate yourself to him today. Today can be the day when you bring that stuff to the cross, to the Kidron Valley, and let God take it from you and give you new life in Christ. In our church, we like to stand in prayer, so I'd like to ask you to stand and let's close in prayer. Let's take a moment in silence before our Lord, our righteous and holy Lord, to consecrate our hearts in our 2024 to him. Father God, we want to begin by declaring your praises as the Holy One, the Holy Creator, our God, our Lord, our Savior. We praise you for your awesomeness, your glory, your righteousness, your perfection, your wisdom, your goodness, and your mercy. And Lord God, we come before you as your covenant people, people who are in covenant with you through the new covenant that you made with us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as the sacrifice that we might be in permanent and eternal fellowship with you. Lord God, we know that we cannot lose our covenant with you. We know, Lord God, that it is unconditional. It is you giving this promise to us and we clinging to it. But Lord, in our humanness and in our fallenness, we can sometimes let other priorities, other difficulties, other hurries of life cloud out your calling upon us to be your people who walk in your ways and walk in fellowship with you, who live lives consecrated to you. And so, Father God, if there's any of us here today, I know in my own heart, Lord, may your, your cleansing work of your spirit turn every corner of our being, every fiber of who we are, to be fully offered to you and consecrated to you. And if there's some aspect of our life, Lord, maybe something nobody else knows about, Lord, may your spirit abide and rule and, and be the Lord in that place too, so that every part of who we are is fully and completely and totally devoted and consecrated to you. But Lord, that is not a work of our willpower. That is a work of your spirit. And that is, Lord God, the new life we have in Christ. That new life is fully consecrated to you. And so, Father God, we ask that by your grace, you would, you would allow us to repent and, and let go of the old man and the old ways that aren't consecrated to you. Because, Lord God, like King Hezekiah saw, we confess that the ways of the world, the ways of our flesh are futile. They haven't worked they aren't satisfying. They aren't the rich joy that you promise us. And so, Father God, we ask for your grace to, to transform us, to live according to your ways and your word. Lord, I thank you for these people here. And I thank you, Lord God, for their attentiveness to the word of God, to your word. I thank you for the weekend I've had with them. And I ask, Lord God, that you would bless them and, and, and be with them and, and just give them rich joy. 
And I thank you, Lord God, for the great blessings that you've given to me through this time with them. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We sing hallelujah to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.